Okay, so we are in our Bible study today. We are looking at Jesus and we are looking at Jesus versus the Bible. That's an interesting title, Angela. Yes. Is Jesus really versus the Bible? Is there such a thing as Jesus versus the Bible? Well, I don't think anyone would just blatantly say that. Definitely, but probably a lot of people fall into the category of feeling that Jesus came to do away with certain parts of Scripture. Okay. I would say, because I, I would say, okay, so this this be my experience. Living in America, I would find a lot of people who would say that Jesus did away with parts of the Bible. A lot of people who call themselves a New Testament Christian. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who would say that Jesus did away with the law, for instance. Living in Australia, I find a lot of people who, when I tell them that I'm a Christian, they're like, yeah, I'm not into religion. And um, I'm like, yeah, but, you know, Jesus had a lot of good things to say. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, we really like Jesus. He had great, you know, Jesus is great, but not the Bible. We don't like the Bible. Hmm. And so that's more of a, I guess, a secular um, objection to it. And so I've I've sort of lived in both countries and seen two different perspectives on it. And... It's surprising how many people in the community there are, particularly here in Australia, who definitely see themselves as spiritual. They place Jesus in the same category as other great religious people of the past who have said very good moral things. Mm -hmm. And that as a result of that, they are happy to be a somewhat follower of Jesus because of all of the good moral things that Jesus said. Of course, they judge that by their own standards, so therefore they're actually creating their own morality. And, you know, they've got no objection to creating their own morality. In fact, they'll, they'll, they'll say, you know, every individual needs to sit down and create their own morality, uh, which as a Christian I don't go by. Um, but it's an interesting conversation to have, and we need to ask ourselves the question, you know, can you have Jesus without having the Bible? Does it even make sense to say that Jesus was a good moral person while rejecting the Bible? Well, he makes a lot of other claims, so I don't know how you could accept some of his teachings and then ignore the other claims. He would have to be a lunatic to make some of the claims he made as a teacher. Okay, so if Jesus, if you're going to take Jesus and not the Bible, to begin with, he's a lunatic, and secondly... He's a liar of the highest level because he claimed to be God. That's the biggest fraud ever there could be. So you can't really claim him as a good moral person if you don't accept the Bible. You can't have your cake and eat it too. It's just, you know, it's, it's going to be a massive contradiction right there. Yeah, you'd, you'd struggle with a lot unless you simply were like, all right, I'll just do the golden rule and it's more blessed to give than receive and that's it and not take any of his other teachings into account because they're all so interconnected to him pointing to the Father. Absolutely. All right, so let's go to our first verse of the day and that is John chapter 5, verse 45 to 47. John chapter 5, verse 45 to 47. Angela, if you could read that one for us, please. Do not think that I should accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, and whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Okay, so Jesus 
you know, he, 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 who, okay, so first of all, who is Jesus pointing to here? Moses. Moses, who wrote what? The first five books of the Old Testament. First five books of the Old Testament. He writes the original canon. Which is what very much the Israelites used to decide everything that they did. <laughs> Absolutely. So you had, say, for instance, Sadducees. That was the only Bible they would use. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't use anything outside of the first five books. Then you had the Pharisees who included all of the Old Testament. And, of course, the New Testament simply did not exist. No. It was happening right there as they lived. (laughs) That's right. The New Testament. Well, the New Testament did exist. It existed in the person of Jesus Christ. You could see the New Testament, which was pretty awesome. It is. Imagine being able to be there for that. You could see the Old Testament playing out exactly how it said it was going to. Okay. So Jesus turns around and says, look, you cannot accept me unless you accept. And he goes all the way back to Moses. Mm -hmm. The original canon. Let's start there with the original canon. Why do you think it is that people today, or why do people say that they are more attuned to the New Testament than the Old? Why would somebody claim to be a New Testament Christian rather than Old Testament Christian? Well, the New Testament seems to portray God in a new light. It seems to be one of love, one of this new way of life, and the Old Testament maybe to some readers, it seems like there's a God of vengeance, mass killings, anger, um, and a a bloody-looking, unloving God. And then all of a sudden you have Jesus, and it's this picture of love and kindness. And you're like, all right, I can connect with that. But the Old Testament, that's just too difficult to figure out all those stories, those passages. So let's just do the one that makes sense to me that I can connect with. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, when you look at the Bible, do you think that that is justified? Um, I'm just an overglazed read, probably, yes. Okay, so if you take a surface read, you could probably come to that kind of a conclusion. Yes. Um, however, you can go a fair way into the New Testament, and I'm just sort of thinking how far you can get into the New Testament. Let's go to Revelation. It's a fair way into the New Testament. In fact, that's right at the end of the New Testament. <laughs> you can't get further into the Bible than the book of Revelation. Let's see how far into Revelation that we can get. Let's, uh, let's try Revelation chapter... Ooh, let me see here. Revelation chapter... Let's try Revelation chapter 21. Okay, almost that's at a, that's the a, end. That's that's a fair way into the book of <laughs> it's a fair way into the book of the New Testament into, into the New Testament. Um, that's a fair way into Revelation. There are only twenty two chapters. Uh, in fact, no. Let's go to Revelation twenty two. Okay. Now in Revelation twenty two there are only twenty one verses, right? Mm-hmm. Let's read verse fourteen and fifteen. Okay. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Okay, so that's a fair way into the New Testament. That is, uh, what have we got here? One, two, three, four, five, say six verses before the end of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty strong language there, wouldn't you say? It definitely is. (coughs) Seems to quite make a clear line with who is in and who is not in. That's right. And, of course, if you go back one chapter, 
to chapter 21, you can read in verse 8, but the fearful and the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, the idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And so when you, when you actually, you know, the strongest warnings that you find anywhere in the Bible are actually in the New Testament, not in the Old. The strongest language is found in the New Testament and not in the Old. Then you can go to the Old Testament and over and over and over and over again you find proclamations of the love of God mm-hmm. um, and demonstrations of God's love and God's patience. And, you know, you've got a God here, a God there who is, um, you know, dealing with some pretty rebellious people who are falling into sin. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. On a regular basis and rebelling against God and yet uh, you have a situation where God is tremendously patient with them and he is, you know, giving them every chance that he possibly can to come to him in repentance. Well, I think of it this way. You know how, um, I can't remember exact figures, but if somebody says something negative to you, doesn't it take three or ten? Do you remember how many positive things it takes before you forget the negative or are able to cope with the negative? Ten? Ooh, Liam's going to go with ten. I have no idea. Anyways, the point, the point remains the same in the fact that you, we tend to easily remember the negative, unfortunately, and forget all the positive. And I, I would be interested to count how many negative verses where verses look like, you know, God is this angry, vengeful God in the Old Testament as compared to the beautiful promises all over in the New Testament of his abounding love and his character desperately trying to reach his people. I vote we get... Angela, we 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 uh, we commissioned Angela to do this exhaustive research. I think it would actually be a really good subject to study because it's so common. You always hear about this terrible God of the Old Testament, and sometimes I just wonder, have you read it? Because if I just open up to Deuteronomy, yeah. there's such beautiful promises there about a God who wants to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, about a God who loves you and longs to protect you. Read Isaiah. It's all the gospel message right the way through Isaiah. It's just amazing. And Psalms. Everybody loves yeah. Psalms. You, people always, you buy those little you know, Bibles. It's the New Testament and Psalms and Proverbs. <laughs> it's kind of like, yeah, Psalms is the, one, is the one book of the Bible and Proverbs is the one, the one book of the Bible that a New Testament Christian can stomach because these ones talk about the love of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they should because they're songs. You know, we don't go and sing songs about God's judgment. Um, you know, it, Features in some hymns and so forth, but it's not the, you know, the a major theme that you're going mm-hmm. to find in songs that we're going to sing in honor of Jesus Christ yeah. and of God. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting thought. I've never thought of that before. Yeah, Psalms and Proverbs and the New Testament, because these are the ones that we think will be palatable for you. You know, a principle that someone just taught me about the Old Testament that I thought was really interesting is that God always takes responsibility when the protection is removed from his people. That's a very, powerful, very isn't it? powerful So God takes statement. ownership, not of necessarily like I did this, but because I chose to remove my protection and this happened to you, I'm taking responsibility as if I did it. But over and over you see the promises in the Old Testament. You keep my commandments, I will protect you. You follow me, I will protect you. Think about the snakes. Um, The snakes were there in the wilderness as we talked about, but he removed his protection because they were choosing, All right, that's the life you want. 
then I can't rule over you as your God if you don't want me to. So I'm going to remove my protection. And then every time in the Old Testament where things are happening, it's just God is taking responsibility because he chose to remove his protection, but he's really honoring their freedom of choice. Yep. Yep. It is... um it's, it's, I guess, in many ways, a difference between an act of commission versus an act of omission. Yes. And when God has all of the power that he needs, an act of omission is just as much his responsibility as an act of commission. Yeah, and I kind of sometimes I get I get uh, I struggle with the fact that people you know they argue over you know does God do this does God do that does God do the other of course God does so and He claims that He does so regardless of whether it's commission or omission because if He has the power to stop it it's God doing it right yeah so it's why struggle <laughs> why why argue whether why argue whether God is doing it or not when God has the power to stop it from happening. So inadvertently, everything is his fault just because he has the power to do all. Oh, so, so this is an interesting question. And I think this might even be coming up in question of the day today. Why, do, why does is. the Bible say that God created evil? Maybe we should, maybe we should keep that one for question <laughs> of the day because I, I could very see, easily see us going down this particular rabbit hole right now. But uh, what we're going to find, you know, getting back to the subject of our study, is that Jesus repeatedly quotes from the Old Testament. Yes. Over and over and over again, the Old Testament is the foundation of his authority. He quotes from nearly all the books in the Old Testament at some particular time and gives them credibility, which is useful for us as Christians because, you know, when we look at the Jews, we basically get our Old Testament canon from the Jews. Mm -hmm. If Jewish people accepted it as being inspired, then we include it in the Bible. If they say, no, this is one of our novels or this is an uninspired history or so forth, we don't include it. So we don't include, you know, your Deuterocanonical books. We don't include your Apocrypha and, and so forth because these are not books that the Jewish people themselves considered to be inspired. and But then you have to ask yourself, okay, which kind of Jews are you going to go with as far as that inspiration goes? Are you going to go with the Sadducees or are you going to go with the Pharisees? Sadducees had five books. The Pharisees had the Old New Testament. Well, what you find is that when Jesus quotes the Bible, he quotes right across the Bible, he quotes right across the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. He doesn't restrict himself to just the five books of Moses, he clearly demonstrates that the Old Testament canon is the Bible that we are to use. Yeah. Recently, I've been reading Desire of Ages again, and I've done something really differently this time where I am looking up all the references that she includes in the chapter. And so I'm finding the story behind what Jesus is quoting. So, for example, yesterday we talked about the temptation of turning the stones into bread. And remember, Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Well, I've never looked up where that is. Well, it's in Deuteronomy, and it's referring to the story of manna, where God is like, providing food literally but he's trying to say you don't have to you don't need food i will literally sustain you by your trust in me and yes you'll have physical food too and so when you when you study it and you really like look at all the verses that jesus is mentioning and then you go back to the old testament you just see this incredible beautiful picture that is so interwoven and you desperately need both um to have this wonderful picture Yes, you certainly do. Absolutely. All right, let's go over to uh, an interesting passage. We have mentioned this one on a number of occasions, and it's in Luke chapter 16. It is probably one of the most misused passages in the Bible, but it illustrates a very, very important lesson, and Jesus uses some rather interesting concepts with which to describe 
the lesson that he wants to teach. So let's go, uh, <laughs> let me see, Luke chapter 16. My Bible is falling apart so badly over here. I'm struggling to even find stuff anymore. It just gets a little bit worse every day. Another page falls out every day and they're just kind of stuck in there. But they do say that a Bible that is falling apart is owned by somebody who is not or somebody who's too stingy to buy an expensive one, which is probably me. Okay, where are we? Let's go down to, uh, let's start in verse 19. All right. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at this gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abram's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abram afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you receive your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would have sent me to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let him... Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Okay, so first of all, we need to deal with the misunderstandings that often come out of this passage. And then we need to actually look at what the passage is all about. Because the passage is all about exactly what we are talking about right now as far as Jesus versus the Bible. So first of all, you have people who will read this passage and you know develop a whole doctrine around it. Uh, that you know originates in Greek mysticism, and that is the doctrine of an eternally burning hellfire where people actually live in a place of torment. So Jesus uses this as an example, as an allegory for the lesson that he wants to teach, but he does not want people to become confused and think that this is what heaven and hell is like. Yes. And so in an effort to make sure that nobody actually gets this wrong, he uses some very extreme language. Let's notice some of the language that is used when Jesus describes the events of what happens when you know the rich man and Lazarus die. First of all, Lazarus being the righteous man, where does he go? He goes to Abraham's bosom, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not much of a huggy person when I get to heaven. <laughs> yeah, I'd feel a little bit weird hugging Abraham, who I've never met before. Maybe after we've got to know each other, maybe then. Oh, so many good things. We're going to come back and we're going to finish this story. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay, let's get back to our Bible study. All right, so here in this Bible study, what Jesus does is like, okay, I'm going to use a story that is uh, a common story of the day that everybody is familiar with, but I don't want you to think about this as being a literal picture of heaven and hell. So I'm going to use language that's going to ensure that it's impossible for you to use it as a literal picture of heaven and hell. So for instance, he begins by saying that the saved man went to, uh, went to Abraham's bosom. Well, first of all, that would be uncomfortable after about 30 seconds. <laughs> Secondly, is that where the righteous live? Well, that's a pretty small the imp- base. <laughs> the implication is that this is where all righteous people go and spend the rest of eternity. I'm not interested in that. I like Abraham. 
<laughs> I want to, yeah, maybe I do want to give him a hug sometime once I get to know him a little bit. Uh, but I don't want to spend eternity just hugging Abraham along with every other saved person. <laughs> and why Abraham? Why not Adam? Hmm. Why not date? You know, there's so many other options that you've got as well. Okay, so this is, Jesus is very, very clearly making it plain. You can't take this literally. Uh, then we continue on from there and we find that they have, he has a conversation with somebody who's in hellfire. Okay, so here's my second problem. If I get to heaven and I am looking at all of the people that I knew who were not saved and I'm sitting back watching them burn in hellfire, what kind of pleasure is there in that? There's That's none. the worst kind of torture. You would actually have to ask yourself the question, who is suffering the most? Mm-hmm. I know as a parent, if one of my children were lost, I would suffer far more than what they would. Yeah. And so that's not a God of love. That's not something that God would do. This is not a literal depiction of what heaven and hell is like. Then the next thing that comes up is they have this conversation with each other and they're like, yeah, yeah, send a drop of water across before we get to that drop of water. Um, Let's comment on the fact that they're having a conversation together so obviously within earshot of each other. But they haven't noticed that there's a big gulf between them. Now, anyone who was in hellfire, the first thing that they would want to do is like, okay, how do I get out of here? And they would know that there was a big gulf, that, okay, you can't get out because there's a big gulf. Well, if you were in hellfire, you would probably jump into the gulf because that would be preferable to being in hellfire. Definitely. Um, So that doesn't make sense as a literal depiction of heaven and hell. Then you have another one here where the person who is in hellfire wants a drop of water dripped onto the tip of their tongue and they are going to be satisfied by that. Now, if hellfire can be solved with one tiny drop of water on the end of my tongue, hey, I'm just not afraid of it. Yeah. You know, that's nothing. That's not even, you know, seriously, that's not hellfire. <laughs> that's, not even, that's not even a hot day. That's actually a cold day because on a cold day, I would struggle to get through the day without drinking some water. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, hellfire is definitely frozen over by the point, by the time that uh, the rich man makes this claim right here. And so why is Jesus using this kind of language? He's using this kind of language because he does not want people in the future to make the mistake of taking it literally. Hmm. He knows that people in the future will make that mistake and so he uses the most extreme language he can to make it as hard as possible for them to do so and so they do look like fools when they when they do so. Having established that this cannot be taken literally, we now need to go back through the story and ask ourselves, what is the message that God is trying to communicate with this parable, well, it's not a parable, allegory, that jumps out and kind of smacks you in the face. Okay, so we've got a rich man and we have a poor man, and the poor man is associated with dogs. Who did the Jewish people consider to be dogs? Anybody who was not a Jew. The Gentiles. Yeah. So the implication here is that you have a rich man. He is wealthy because he has the knowledge of God. He is wealthy because he has the Bible. He has the word of God. He has been given the pearl of great price. He has been given you know, the treasures of God's wisdom. He is wealthy because of all of this. And a few crumbs of that wealth are escaping to the Gentiles. Hmm. 
and they're sitting out there begging for the blessings that the rich man has and getting nothing more than just a few crumbs here and there. Then we find that one of them is saved and one of them is lost. The rich man who kept everything for himself, who has the word of God and keeps it to himself, is lost. The poor man, who's only getting crumbs of the word of God, gets into heaven before he does. Yes. And Jesus talks about, you know, Tyre and Sidon, you know, being more qualified for heaven than Israel because of how they respond. And Nineveh as well, because, you know, Nineveh responded to the preaching of Jonah, whereas they won't even respond to the preaching of the Son of God. And so Jesus is drawing this contrast here between the Gentiles and the Jews, the wealth of the Jews, the poverty of the Gentiles, and the greed of the Jews in not sharing the gospel message with the Gentiles. So he draws this contrast and eventually comes down to the main point he's going to make. The rich man who is in hellfire says to Lazarus, it's interesting that the person here, his name is Lazarus. He says, send Lazarus, he says to Abraham, send Lazarus back to warn my brothers. And Abraham said, they're Moses and the prophets. They've got the Bible. That's all they need. And he said, no, but if someone went from the dead, they will believe. Hmm. And he said, if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't, be, they won't believe even if someone was raised from the dead. And this is the main point of what Jesus is talking about in this parable, in this allegory, it's all about his relationship to the Word of God. And he's saying, look, the Word of God, everything in the Word of God speaks of me. Mm. And it is so plain in the Old Testament that it speaks of me that even if I raised somebody from the dead named Lazarus, you would still not believe because you have shut your minds off to the plainest statements of Scripture. And then, of course... Jesus does go ahead and he does raise somebody from the dead, a person named Lazarus who had been dead for four days and having done so, they go out and they crucify him for doing a miracle like that. 